Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome back to Who's Talking. She's a rising talent who's had artistic breakthroughs in two different areas. Within a year, she became a Grammy-nominated musician and a best-selling author. Both her music and her writing focus on her compelling personal story, a tragic loss, and how she's dealt with it. You've had a few clunkers in recent years. You think? That's not perception. That's reality. I'm feeling stronger than ever now in my life. How would you rate yourself as a chef? Why, I'm not doing that with you, Christopher Wilder. Michelle Zahner, welcome. I am delighted to get this chance to get to know you better. Thank you for having me. I want to start with identity, which is such an important part of your work. Do you consider yourself a musician who writes or a writer who makes music? Um, I don't know if I think too much about it. I feel like both of those things have their root in being a, a storyteller of some, some kind. I think I am someone that is very uh, excited and Im- impressed by the ordinary and um, am interested in calling attention to those things in, in work, be it in music or writing. What do you mean interested in the ordinary? Well, for instance, my book is... Um, I mean, I guess kind of an ordinary story. My mother was a homemaker, which I think is, you know, somewhat of an ordinary thing. And um, yeah, I, I think I, my role is to kind of find what's profound in the everyday and to um, sort of shout it from the rooftops. All right. I have another identity question. As an Asian American, and you talk about that a lot in your book, do you consider yourself more one than the other? Um, no, I, I think it's kind of interesting, actually. Um, I know a lot of mixed race people have expressed uh, that they're not half of either identity. They're two whole parts, which I think is um, something very beautiful, but not something I necessarily feel. I actually think that my identity is really bound up in not quite belonging in, in either whole part. And so I feel like very much rooted in and that fractured part of me, not quite belonging into uh, be- Korean people or not quite belonging to being fully American. Okay. This book, Crying in H Mart, read every word of it, deeply moving, beautifully written. And I want to dig into it with you over the next period of time. Uh, a year on the New York Times bestseller list, uh, which is pretty. Pretty astonishing. I think the best I ever did was six or seven weeks. So I I very much am an envy of a year. Over half a million copies sold. What do you think is this book's appeal? Um, I mean, I'd like to believe they're just very universal themes. I mean, it's a mother and daughter story. It's a coming of age story. I think many people from all different uh, ethnicities can relate to um, food having a profound impact on, on their memories and their families. And so... 
I, I think that it's, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people have lost a loved one, have, have grieved, um, have experienced caretaking for someone who has cancer. And so I think they're all different ways to, to relate to the book that have found people in different ways. But one way in which your story is not typical, to the degree anybody's story is typical, is your mom, Shang Mi, is, is not sweet, <laughs> is not soft. Uh, and you're pretty unsentimental. And let's take a look at how you describe her. Here you are. Hers was tougher than tough love. It was brutal, industrial strength. A sinewy love that never gave way to an inch of weakness. It was a love that saw what was best for you ten steps ahead. I didn't care if it hurt like hell in the meantime. So... <laughs> <laughs> You wrote it. Uh, give me, give me a sense. Give, give me a sense of brutal industrial love. Um, my mom was just very honest and could be quite judgmental. I mean, she could be very kind and, and sweet when she wanted to be. But for instance, if you know I lost a job, uh, maybe someone else's mom would say, "Oh, you know, you'll find another one," or "They don't deserve you." And my mom, uh, when I got fired from my waitressing job, said, well, Michelle, anyone can carry a tray. Uh, so she just had this very, um, you know, upfront way of, of telling it like it was. And it, it shaped me very much to be who I, who I am. And, and how tough and brutal was your love back as a teenager? How difficult was your, tense was your relationship when you were a teenager? I think especially when I was a teenager and really coming of age and, and finding my sort of independent identity, and especially as a creative, like as a young girl interested in playing in punk bands, uh, it was, <laughs> there was quite a bit of tension growing up with someone who wanted me to, you know, be a little bit more put together. If you were into a punk band, what was her dream? Doctor? Lawyer? Yeah, she thought I would be a great lawyer. She probably would have wanted me to dress more like this. Which I have to say, I was very surprised when you walked in. Folks, I promise you, we're going to show you a, a different a Michelle Zahner yeah. and, and other parts here. So when you left to go to college and you went as far, you grew up in Oregon, you go all the way to the East Coast to Bryn Mawr. How estranged were you two? Actually, that was sort of when we began to come back together. Um, we were at our worst, probably, when I was 18, about to go to college. And the distance apart um, really helped our relationship. It made me really value, um, you know, what I overlooked as, as a teenager, as a spoiled teenager. And I think it helped her kind of let go of, you know, what she felt had been her duty for so long to protect me from... Uh, yeah, I think that it actually really helped our relationship. Then, and this is where the story gets sad, at age 25, uh, you find out that your mom has stage four cancer. And you leave the East Coast where you're living and you move back to Oregon uh, to take care of her. And you say in the book to, quote, cure her by being the perfect daughter. Mm. Did you really think you could do that? I think that when you have that type of prognosis, um, for me personally, I went in with just diluted optimism because you have to believe in a 1% chance. You know, no one goes into that situation, uh, wants to go in with negativity. So I felt like if I cared for her perfectly, that we could find a miracle. And I mean, you, you described 
in painful but I think necessary detail, uh, her taking a bath and the hair falling out and sleeping on a little padded bench in her hospital. I mean, how tough was it? Oh, it was the most difficult time in my life. I mean, I genuinely look at my life as kind of folded in half around that experience. I am the person I was before that experience and the person I am now after um, that. Uh, and I think that that was part of the reason why it was so important for me to write this book was because I felt like I had, I had not been prepared at all for that experience and I wanted so desperately for people to know what happened to me and, and what that looked like and also to kind of warn them that that, uh, that, that exists, that, that that could very well enter your life and to be prepared for it. And then, of course, she passes and you describe so beautifully and so movingly your overwhelming grief. And here's a passage of that. Sometimes my grief feels as though I've been left alone in a room with no doors. Every time I remember that my mother is dead, it feels like I'm colliding with a wall that won't give. There's no escape, just a hard surface that I keep ramming into over and over, a reminder of the immutable reality that I will never see her again. <laughs> what are your thoughts when you he hear that? Um, it's funny when you have to try to describe something that is so uh, in intangible. I mean, I feel like when I wrote that line, I felt <laughs> really stupid, like trying to d define exactly what the experience was. And you're just, uh, I mean, you're just creating something out of thin air to try to express something that has, you know, always existed uh, in the world. But uh, yeah, I feel like it, in the end, it, it, it holds very true. I still, I still feel that way sometimes. Well, I have to tell you, I think that's a pretty, um, pretty graphic and pretty powerful metaphor. And, and, and the question I have is eight years later, which is the time it's been since your mom died, is your grief still that hard wall that you keep ramming into? I think it's different. Um, no, I don't, I don't think that it's, it's quite like that anymore. It's transformed into something different. Which is? Um, it's something, maybe the walls are a, a little softer. <laughs> <laughs> a soft there, wall that you keep ramming there into? Are some, there are some exits I've, I've found. Were there, were there times, because it felt that way reading the book, were there times in the depth of that grief when you just weren't sure how you were going to get through it, if you were going to get to the other side? Yeah, absolutely. There were days that I, it felt like, how, how will I ever persist? And, and... And what do you think? Was it just time that made the difference? Um, I think time is a, is a huge part of it. Um, I think for me as an artist, writing about that experience was incredibly cathartic. And um, yeah, you know, finding, finding my footing in, in my work has, has been helpful. Which brings us to the title of this book, Crying in H Mart, which people at this point might still not understand why. <laughs> why. And the point is that you found bonding both in life and in death in food with your mom. And, and, uh, and then you talk about the fact that you used to go to an H Mart. And we have a picture. We got pictures of an H Mart, <laughs> uh, which to folks who don't know, and I didn't, is the biggest Asian grocery chain in the U.S. And here is what you have to say about that. 
Food was how my mother expressed her love. No matter how critical or cruel she could seem, constantly pushing me to meet her intractable expectations, I could always feel her affection radiating from the lunches she packed and the meals she prepared for me just the way I liked them. I can hardly speak Korean, but in H-Mart it feels like I'm fluent. You say that, that uh, food is the way you were able to mourn your mother, the connection over food that you had. And, and this is where it gets interesting, and this is why I started with the issue of identity, because you say it's also the way that you can kind of claim and preserve your Korean heritage. Yeah, I think that there were, you know, the book really set out to answer the question, why am I crying in H Mart? Why did I find myself in this Korean grocery store? And I think it just, um, you know, it reminds me so much of my childhood. I had the opportunity to visit Korea every other summer with my mom and, you know, eating was such a big part of that. It was a big part of the way she connected with her family. It was a big part of what she missed from that country. Um, but I also felt like it was this strange sort of psychological undoing of the failure that I felt um, in being unable to prepare the dishes that my mother needed when she was sick as a Korean woman. And in the book, a friend of hers, a Korean woman, comes to live with us and is able to sort of prepare these foods. And I think that after she passed, part of the reason why it was so important for me to learn how to make those things was to kind of... Um, absolve some of the shame that I felt that I wasn't able to know how to make those things for her when she was sick. And also that if I didn't start putting the work into maintaining that part of myself, um, preserving that part of my culture and that knowledge, it was at risk to suddenly exit my identity and my life. I mean, that's what I find so interesting because you were dealing not only with the loss of your mother, but the possibility that you might also lose your Korean-ness. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that that's a big part of the book's question is, am, am I even Korean anymore without my mother? Um, because, you know, it used to be I could just call my mom if I had a question about, Koreans eat this, right? Or Koreans do this, right? This is what we do on this holiday. And now I don't have that person anymore. And so suddenly it feels like, am I even Korean if I don't know the answer to these things? And I have to sort of seek them out on my own without just calling my mom. Now, even before you started writing, as you, you talked about your, to your mother's horror, you were playing in some indie pop bands. And in 2016, you start a band, uh, this is after your mom has died, called Japanese Breakfast. All right, Michelle, you got me. Why did you call your band Japanese Breakfast? And what is a Japanese breakfast? Which um, I assume is why you wanted to call a Japanese breakfast yeah, in the first place. Yeah, um, a Japanese breakfast. Uh, I I started the, this side project um, very casually in, in 2012 uh, when my other band, Little Big League, which was not very successful, um, as a sort of side project to that band. And I just really wasn't thinking very much about it at the time. I had seen some very pleasant images of Japanese breakfast, which was kind of like a soup and some pickles and rice and like a filet of fish or tamago kake gohan, which is like a raw egg with, with rice. And I just thought that is such a pleasant image. It conjures such a nice uh, feeling that I just thought I would name it this moniker, not knowing that this project would become a Grammy-nominated project and uh, be selling out shows and... and the world. Well, here's a video from one of your albums with lots of family photos. Let's take a look. What's this place? Not here. 
I asked them to put up these <laughs> two pictures. That's lovely. Your mom and you recreating a picture of your mom. Why did you do that in the video? I think, I, you know, I talk about this a lot in the book. I feel like um, when, you know, to be an only daughter and to lose your mom, it feels like uh, the only way to move forward is to truly believe that you, like, absorbed her. Like, you are her in a way. And so I think I always try to call attention to recreating that, that feeling. And what were you trying to say in the video and in the, in the song? I guess in the video, I mean, that song is called Body is a Blade. And it's very much about uh, like sort of cutting through the days until they get easier. Um, at the time, you know, I wrote that was my second album and uh, my grief was still pretty fresh. It was the sort of year after it happened. And um, it was a it was a real chug to, to move forward still. And, and that was kind of um, almost like a mantra for me to like keep going. And I should point out for people who are being exposed to Japanese breakfast, and I have to say in about the last week, I have become quite an expert on Japanese <laughs> breakfast. You. Not the not the mail, <laughs> but the music. Uh, it's not all blowing air bubbles like in that video. Here is some some video of you rocking out. Oh boy. Here you go. And here you are at the Grammys with your drummer, where you were nominated this year for two awards. Uh, that must have been a trip. That was a trip, yeah. It was. I did not expect that at all. And was it still fun, even though he said awkwardly you didn't win? Oh, um, I went in not thinking I was going to win. I was just honored to be a part of the conversation. It was so much fun. I had... Such a great time. I thought it was going to be really boring, but there's actually like so many high budget performances happening the entire time. And it, it was just a blast. And it was just a great celebration with my team to get together and uh, celebrate. So, so our which work is together. the real Michelle Zahner? And this is probably a stupid <laughs> question. Is it the one with the very lovely lyrical music or is it the one who's rocking out? With a guitar. I'm, I'm multifaceted. <laughs> <laughs> multifaceted. Yeah. The music comes through me, huh? Yeah, I mean, I think that they're all a version of me. I think we all have those parts of ourselves. So let me ask you about another part of yourself. You make it clear in the book that you're an atheist. Mm. And I, I noted, and I must say as a grammarian, it bothered me. You spelled God, I'm sure intentionally, oh, yes, with yeah. a small g over and over <laughs> in the book. And I'm going, why the hell is she writing God with a small g? You know you're supposed to capitalize internet these days, too. Is that true? Yes. Oh, I didn't I know I believe that. so. Okay. I well, should make but, sure that. So not God, but internet that you can capitalize. <laughs> but, but despite the fact that you say, and this is an issue you had with your mother, who was a devout Christian, that you she were... She was not a devout Christian. Oh, she, okay. Make well, it I right think it's me. actually really important that she wasn't a devout Christian because both of her sisters were devout Christians. That's right. And That's so right. much of the Korean community is, is very rooted in Christianity. And actually, growing up in a small town in Eugene, Oregon, uh, where there is a very small Korean-American community, 
almost entirely rooted in the church. That's where they commune. And my mom was not, my mom sort of stepped away from that. And I, looking back, realized how, how brave it was actually for her not to um, subscribe to that, even though it would have been so much easier for her to have access to her community in that way. So your mom is not <laughs> a not devout Christian. Yeah. And you are an atheist, but you also say in the book that when you're looking at the extraordinary success you had with the book and the music, that uh, <laughs> that you wondered if maybe there was some divine intervention with your mother doing some tough love to the Almighty. Yes, yes. Uh, if she had his, her foot on his neck. Um, uh, yes, that's the way you put it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's. I think a lot of people of my generation are, are probably atheists, and uh, at least in the U.S. And I think that. The reality is, is that our parents' generation have the comfort of of God and, and religion, um, and I I, th I don't think my generation really knows what to do with cold hard science uh, in the face of really tough uh, existential questions when we're faced with them, um, and I think that that was really hard for me when she died because even the act of putting flowers on her grave. It wasn't enough for me to think I'm doing this as like a ritual act for myself. I had to believe, I had to suspend my disbelief in some way and think she knows that these are here. And I think that that was really hard was to have to learn to accept that. But it is very strange that, you know, I spent my entire 25 years of my life, it felt like, maybe not the entire 25 years, but a lot of my life really aspiring and working hard to find success as an, as an artist. And it wasn't until after she passed away that I began to create work uh, that was received um, with so much success. And, uh, and it, it was impossible to not feel in some way that, that she was looking out for me after. It was very serendipitous. So I'm now going to you, give you some comfort and by channeling your mom, because I want to talk about something that she strongly disapproved of which I strongly disapprove of oh. too, which are tattoos. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and people aren't going to get it. You can hold the, oh, these yes. up, yeah. but that, that's, that's nothing. I mean, yeah. what are, I, you're, they're you're covered all, right now. So, so, and I've been through this with my kids as well. <laughs> yeah. I must say more effectively than your mom was with you because yeah, they, they yeah. haven't to the best of my knowledge. Right. Why all the tattoos? Uh, I just like them. Um, I, I still like them, you know. Despite uh, what I, what your mother and I say. Yeah, I don't know if it's like too deep beyond that. I, I just really, I like them. They feel a part of me. <laughs> well, guess what? As I would say to my kids, they are a part of you. <laughs> now, uh, unless you want to go through a very painful detattooing, which I'll be happy to pay for. Yeah, if you would no. Like. <laughs> no. No. All right. One of the things that that I, I said to you before we started rolling here is that, you know, this is a sad book, yeah. but it's also a very funny book. And my favorite part of the book is when you strong arm your boyfriend, Peter, oh, yeah. uh, who and, and the two really haven't discussed engagement, although you've been living together for a long time. And you basically say to him, you got to marry me because my mom's going to die and I want her to be there for our wedding. Uh, so the question I have is, I know you're still married. I know that he's part of Japanese Breakfast. Are the two of you living happily ever after? Um, we are. I mean, it was the 
it was he didn't know it at the time, but it was the best thing that that ever happened uh, to us. I believe. <laughs> I mean, it was really wonderful too because, like, you know, my mom uh, was able to be at our wedding, and um, she's sort of the last person that he is the last person that she'll have ever been able to approve of, you know, and um, and I just. In that moment, it was like, that's what, what better example of what love really is than to have been able to stand by me during the hardest time of my life and, and to come through like this. And I said to him, you know, if you, if you think this is something that we might do in the next five years uh, and we don't do it now, I will never forgive you. And that's what really kind of put it uh, into, into context. Yeah, I think, you know, I thought of the verb I was going to use and, and I, I really very <laughs> purposefully arm. came to strong arm. Yeah, because yeah. I, no, that's fair. I mean, I, it worked out really well. It could have not. And I was like, well, we'll just be divorcees, young divorcees. It will be very hip. Uh, but we we've, are very happily married eight years later. So what's next? for you, both in music and in books, or whatever else. Yeah, I am currently working on the film adaptation of Crying in H Mart. Um, you're writing it? I'm writing the screenplay. Wow. It's, it's finished, it's in, I'm in the revision process with the studio right now, and yeah, I will probably write another record next year, and um, in 2024, I am going to move to Korea for one year and document the process of learning the language, uh, and that will be my second book. So the movie, have you got someone to play Michelle Zahner? Uh, not yet. I think that we have to sort of finalize the screenplay a bit more. But I'm really looking forward to um, finding, you know, some bright young talent. Finally, uh, as I said, the, you and your mom, and as you say in your book, you and your mom really connected over food. I want you to take a look at this. The sesame oil, generously, one tablespoon. I love sesame okay, ready, oil. Ready, ready to, at the same time, ready, go. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> you, look, you looked a little scared there when she said, ready, go. <laughs> What's going on there, Michelle? Oh, that's my hero. Um, that is Mang Chi. She's a Korean YouTube vlogger with probably, I think, over like 5 million subscribers. And um, she really sort of demystified the Korean cooking process for a lot of uh, an English-speaking audience. There the two of you are, incidentally. Yeah, it's I just adore her. She's such a celebrity. Um, and she has been so generous and very, very warm to me and uh, taught me how to cook a lot of, of Korean dishes and... Uh, was this sort of like digital guardian for me during uh, my intense morning and, and helped kind of uh, settle me into learning how to cook Korean food. And, and one thing I was curious about in the book, I, it didn't bother me, but I thought, again, this is something intentionally, you would describe these Korean foods, which if you're not Korean, you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and why, you know, why did you decide, I'm not gonna say, hey, this is like that, you, that you were just gonna say, I'm making this dish? Um, I think I do sometimes. I think that the way I try to approach the foods in the book was like, I'm sitting at a table with someone who is maybe not so familiar with Korean food and someone who is very familiar with Korean food. And so how do I find a way to describe these dishes without uh, completely boring this person, but not leaving this person out? 
Um, and so that's how I, I think I just tried to think of a, a wider audience and not just specifically people who didn't know Korean food. Um, I tried to be inclusive in that way. And I feel like now we're in an age where it's very easy to look that kind of thing up if you want to know more about it. And um, I think it made a lot of people really curious. And there's a lot of context clues to, to move forward if you want to and to do more research if, if that's what you're interested in as well. I, I didn't look anything up, but I didn't, you know, I, I got it. It was a dish. You got it. And yeah. yeah, I got it. I, to the degree I felt I needed it, I got it. <laughs> so here's the toughest question of our conversation. Are you a good Korean cook? Am I a good Korean cook? I think I am. I think I'm a pretty, I can hold my own. I think I'm pretty good at making certain things. And, and what does Peter say? Peter loves my cooking. I'm really lucky that he is not a cook, and so he's, you know, welcomes everything. Are you everything. sure he really I, loves your cooking, or after uh, you've strong-armed armed been, him into marriage, as he? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's he's definitely not that ripped, um, but I, I think he does genuinely. I mean, he loves uh, Korean food, and and I think he's a, a big fan of of my cooking and and me in general. At least that's what he says. Yeah, at least that's what he says. Michelle, this has been a delight. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you for the book. Thank you for the music. And uh, thank you for sitting down with us. Thank you for having me. In telling her story, Michelle Zauner says she's sharing the wound she still feels from losing her mother. She's written a book and music that have found a big audience. And that audience can't wait to read and to hear what she has to say next. Thanks for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want right here on HBO Max to find out who's talking next. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.